We just came out of a year of studying the book of Acts together, if you've been with us. And, and so last week, as Rayshawn preached, we, we saw that the book of Acts has how many chapters in it? 28 chapters. And, and so here's the thing, though. Today, some people have said, we live in Acts 29. Now, what does that mean? Well, the idea here is that the mission that Jesus gave to His church to go and make disciples of all nations and to go to the ends of the earth as His witnesses, that that mission has been entrusted to us. It's, a, it's like being in a relay race and having a baton put in your hand and now you're going to run with it. We just watched Peter and John and Philip and Paul run, run, sprint their hearts out and now it's as if Paul put the gospel baton into the hands of the church today and said, take this where we did not get to go. And so this message today has a lot to do with what we've been reading in the book of Acts. It's about how the book of Acts should shape and change our lives. And somewhere between Acts chapter 20 and the first half of Acts chapter 21, the Apostle Paul was traveling to Jerusalem. And he wrote a letter while he was traveling there to the church in Rome. Today we can safely say that Paul's letter to the Roman church is the most influential letter ever written in the history of the world. More lives have been changed as a result of that letter. Uh, more, more churches have been established. More, more countries have been affected and influenced. And, and personally, my own life is still being changed by the letter that Paul wrote to the, to the Romans so long ago. What we're going to do today is read a small portion of that letter in chapter 15. And so let's, let's do that actually right now. Romans chapter 15. I'm going to read verse 17 to 25. And then we'll get to some of the rest of it in the message. Chapter 15, verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. I won't get to preach about this today, but it's very interesting that Paul is going on about a 2,000-mile detour. His heart, his, his gospel ambition, as we'll see in a minute, take, is taking him to Spain where there is still an unreached people and yet he finds himself traveling 2,000 miles out of the way to Jerusalem to bring aid to poor people. Never forget that the work of the church is always concerned about meeting the needs of the poor. Uh, and that's all I'll say about that today. But let's, let's, let's go through. I'm going to tell you a story here and see if you can follow along. Some of you will know what I'm alluding to as I read this. One day, a man who owned thousands of fields sent his workers into those fields to harvest the fruit that had begun to grow there. He told them, go and gather fruit from me or for me from all of my fields. And he posted his instructions in the first field for all of his current and his future workers. 
So the workers went out and they began to do what their boss had told them to do. Some stayed in the first field. Others began to harvest the fields nearby. Now these were very large fields and each one of them was completely filled with fruit. The workers were overwhelmed with the task of harvesting just one field. As a result, some of them decided to stay in one field and to gather as much fruit as possible from that field. Now, of course, the boss was extremely pleased with the amount of fruit that was being harvested from some of his fields. But ultimately, he would never be completely satisfied until he had fruit from all. Everybody say all. All of his fields. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says, Go and make disciples of... Everybody say? All nations. Jesus will never be completely satisfied until all is all. We're missing it as a church if we allow all to become reduced to some. No matter how pleased Jesus is with that sum. Through this part of the Bible today in Romans 15, uh, I believe God is calling his people to at least three things. And so what, what I want to do is just give them to you up front. And starting in verse 17, we'll come across them in the Bible. Uh, first, a deeper understanding of the Christian gospel. And, of course, of the mission of Christ that grows out of it. Number two what we'll call apostolic ambition. Apostolic ambition. And finally, number three, gospel partnerships for the sake of taking the gospel into the final frontiers for the gospel. Those people groups spoken about in that video clip, those who have not yet been able to hear or see. One more time, a deeper understanding of the Christian gospel, apostolic ambition, Gospel partnerships for the sake of taking the gospel into the final frontiers. Verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. That's interesting that Paul, everywhere in the Bible, we're we're warned against being proud and warned against being prideful, and and yet Paul says here, I'm proud of my work for God. And he, he identifies it as his work. Does he not? Look at your Bible. He says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. But, but Paul's not in a conceited way taking credit for things here because we know from verse 18 that that's not the case. He goes on and he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what God or Christ rather has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. All right, so Paul is not in the business of, of talking too much about what Christ has accomplished through other churches or other people or other ministries and, and, and all that kind of thing. Paul is... Paul is saying, I'm not going to go beyond proper limits, what Christ is doing. This is what I know. This is what he's doing through our ministry. And he begins to speak about that. And, and he, notice he refers to it as the, the accomplishment of Christ. Any success in Christian ministry is the accomplishment of Christ. That's very important to remember. Any success in Christian ministry is the accomplishment of Christ and not simply of people like us or like Paul. And so Paul goes on very quickly and he says that I will not speak of anything except for what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now that word Gentiles, focus in on that for just a moment. The the word Gentiles there is actually a Greek word, ethne. It's, It's the word from which we get our English word ethnicity. It's not talking about 
a certain kind of, uh, of nation or country as we think about it, like the United States or Nigeria. It, it, it's, it's an ethnic people, an ethno-linguistic people. They, they share a common language and a common culture. It, it would be distinguishing between, per se, if you went to the country of Nigeria, you would have to distinguish between the Igbo, the Yoruba, and the Hausa. That's what we're talking about here. That's a people group. And what Jesus says is go out there, and Paul says here he brought the nations or the Gentiles to obedience. That word nations there, the word Gentiles in this passage, is the exact same word that we find in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's all ethne. Go and make disciples of all the different people groups on the planet. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the only mission for the church. That is the church's mission. Go and make disciples of all the ethno-linguistic people groups on the face of the planet. And all means all. We're not finished yet. 2,000 years of obedience to Christ's mission and the church has not yet finished. Now I ask you a very simple question. If you were a substitute in a a soccer match and you came in midway through the second half, the score was 3-0, and your team was winning, would you encourage all of the defenders to take risks and to come out of the back and to go and try and score more goals? Or would would you probably be coming on and have the coach say something to you, now make sure you preserve that lead? Evan, Greg, talk to me here, soccer players. If you, if you are down two to one and the coach puts you in at that point, he's expecting you to change the game, right, and to take risks and go forward. When you enter something while it's in progress, it matters what's been going on before. You cannot enter Christianity today and think that it starts with you. You cannot simply decide, here's what I want to do in obedience to Christ. Jesus has one mission for the one church that belongs to him in the entire world, and it is to make disciples of all nations, all. However pleased he is with the obedience that brings some, he's still waiting for all. All right, so Paul goes on. Jesus is bringing the Gentiles to obedience through his ministry. And and this is a remarkable statement. I read this seven years ago, and and I don't know if this was the fifth, the tenth, or the twentieth time I had read it, but all of a sudden it jumped off the page to me and changed my life. It changed my priorities. Christ was accomplishing this through Paul's ministry, verse 19, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, Paul could say, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. And even more remarkable than saying, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel all the way around the Mediterranean world in the Roman Empire, all the way up the Adriatic Sea, up to modern-day Albania in Illyricum. He said, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel there. And look what he says, actually, just a couple of verses down in verse 23. Not only have I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel, but to bring it home, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. What in the world is Paul talking about? You're a Christian 
you're out there trying to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, and Paul looks at Ephesus, he looks at the whole province of Galatia, he looks at all of the cities that he has visited in the book of Acts, and he says, after what I've done in that city with my teammates for the sake of the gospel, there's no longer any room for me to work. Now, what would Paul say about a city like Richmond, Virginia? He'd say, there's no room for me to work. What does that mean for the rest of us? Well, we'll get, we'll get there in a minute. But this is really interesting. Now, this is what I'm talking about when I say we're called in this passage to a deeper understanding of the Christian gospel. Because what Paul says here is astonishing and we ought not to pass by it too quickly. What do you mean you have no more room for work? And if that's the case, you won't see this unless you flip there in your Bible. But if that's the case, then why do you look at Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and command him to stay in Ephesus and work? Why do you tell Titus to go to Crete and work? You just said you have no more room for work there. Why are you sending them to do Christian work? Because there's no room left for Paul to work, but there's plenty of room left for Timothy and Titus to work. And at the heart of that mystery, answering why that is the case, is the nature of the Christian gospel itself. I read this and I I couldn't believe it. Paul says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And I just said, God, what does that mean? Galatians, one day I was reading Galatians chapter 3. By the way, college students who are back, if you come on Monday nights, we're going through the book of Galatians this semester. But Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. God began to put puzzle pieces together for me. And I read this here, again, probably about the 25th time I had read it. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, again, that's that word ethne or nations, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now, I don't have time this morning to talk about the scripture being able to foresee things and the scripture preaching the gospel and how the scripture preaches the gospel better than any of us, but you can run with that. What I'm going to talk about here is what you see in verse 8. Do you see here that the gospel was preached beforehand to whom? Abraham lived about 2,000 years before the appearance of Christ. How was the gospel preached to Abraham? Think with me. You're allowed to think in church. Did you know that? I saw a bumper sticker two weeks ago, and I'll never forget this bumper sticker. Uh, the The person looked looked like they would be, you know, a liberal, progressive, however they would self-identify. I mean, that, that's, that's fair to say. And, and on the bumper sticker was, don't pray in my school and I won't think in your church. Isn't that sad? That that's kind of how the world thinks about Christians. And isn't it even more sad that we give them reason to think that way? So think, think with me for a minute. How was the gospel preached to Abraham? Well, it tells us, doesn't it, in verse 8? That's the best thing about reading the Bible. 
when you keep reading the Bible straight through in context, you begin to ask the correct questions, and it, it actually supplies the answers for you. So the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, saying, here's the gospel that was preached to Abraham. Everybody read it together. Does that sound like the gospel to you? No, the gospel, no, I'll answer for you. No, it doesn't. No. Some of you are saying yes, but no, it doesn't. Many of us, we, we think of the gospel as what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that's not wrong. It's about the events of Jesus' coming, his, his life, his death on the cross in the place of sinners, his resurrection, his, his ascension. Yeah, that is the gospel. But so is this. Look. In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. Where is that from in the scriptures? Everyone turn to Genesis chapter 12. We'll be back in Romans 15 soon, but turn, turn to Genesis chapter 12. This is where this promise is first communicated to Abraham, and it's repeated two more times from that point. One is in chapter 18, and I won't go to that one, but the other one actually uses the word nations in chapter 22, verses 17 to 18. First Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. God says to Abram, his name is Abram at that time, and he, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that, you're, or, so that you will be a blessing. Not just have a blessing, but be a blessing. Verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. By the time you get to chapter 22 of Genesis... Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, the one through whom the promises were to be fulfilled. He trusted in God that much. Hebrews tells us that figuratively speaking, Abraham reasoned that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And in chapter 22, verse 17 and 18, God repeats this promise to Abraham and he says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, not just in you now, it's further developed, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now Galatians chapter 3 tells us who that offspring is. It's Christ. That is pointing forward to Christ. And so in Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed according to the promise that God made to Abraham. And the Christian gospel, the Christian gospel is not just something that we trace back to the words of Christ, but something that we trace all the way back to this promise to Abraham that runs through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus actually did not make up another gospel. He fulfilled the one that God preached to Abraham. The good news, the gospel, the Christian gospel, according to Jesus, the one that Jesus lived out, was never just about staying in one place and trying to win as many people to Christ as possible while we ignore all the nations. That's what, look at me. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It has never been about that. It is actually a very subtle perversion of the Christian gospel. Even while 
even while it is a genuine and legitimate expression of faithfulness to Christ in the seeking and saving of those, of those who are lost. I know that may be difficult to understand, but when we reduce the gospel to the point where it, it, it leads us to no longer be concerned about all nations, all peoples coming to Christ, and only some, then we've really lost the essence of the Christian gospel. I'll prove it to you. I wasn't going to do this, but I'll prove it to you. Look at Luke chapter 1. Amanda, you don't have to worry about putting this on a slide. Luke chapter 1. Everybody, everybody have a Bible? If not, I think we have some in the back and you can, go, you can go look for one. I know this is scary. I'm still on point number one of three. But stick with me here. Luke chapter 1. Why did Jesus come? Why did God send Jesus into the earth? What did John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, say? Luke chapter 1, verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The coming of Christ was about the gospel as promised to Abraham. What did Mary, Jesus' mother, say? Luke chapter 1. Or rather, that was Mary. Forgive me for that one. That was Mary in in chapter 1, verse 54 and 55. What did Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, say? Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's not mistaken. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. How did Peter and the apostles understand it after Jesus rose from the dead? Acts chapter 3. We've gone through this over the past year. Verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets. And of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God said, I will bless you, Abraham. And look at what Peter says in verse 26. God having raised up his servant. What was the resurrection about? God having raised up his servant. Sent him first to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What was Jesus' death, resurrection about, and then the power of the Spirit which turns us from our sin and wickedness about? It was about the Christian gospel as promised to Abraham. You were saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, and given the Holy Spirit so that all nations would believe in Christ. And we are not free as Christians to reduce or change the mission of or the gospel that Jesus and the Bible have given us. If you were like me seven years ago, if you're like me as I was seven years ago, and you don't care, you're just too overwhelmed with what's going on here, lost people around you, spiritual needs in your backyard, and you have no room in your heart, no desire to see the nations gathered and brought to Christ, you have to repent. It's not optional. You're actually in sin. You're, you're departing from the heart of Christ. Just as I was seven years ago, and to some degree continue to be in need of repentance. Now, don't feel bad about that. 
Allow the Holy Spirit of God to work on your heart. God understands this. He's very patient with us. He, listen, he has all the power in the world. I'm, I'm not trying to tell you that the fate of the world rests upon you and your repentance. We have a Savior. It's not you. It's not me. You don't have to put that load on your shoulders. But eagerly anticipate what God is doing in your heart if you really consider what the Christian gospel is actually about and the end to which God wants to carry you, the purpose for which he wants to use you to bring the nations to Christ. There is a greater understanding of the Christian gospel spoken of in this passage. It is for the purpose of gathering all nations to the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God. In fact, I didn't read this in Romans chapter 15, but if you look at verse 8 there, this will bring us back to Romans and get me to my second point. Aren't you glad? In Romans chapter 15, verse 8, why did Christ come? Why did he become a servant? For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the Jews or to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. See, that's Abraham. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify, that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. The gospel has always been about all nations glorifying God for his mercy. Jesus' is life, Jesus' is death, Jesus' is resurrection, the sending of the Spirit, the empowerment of the church, the gospel going forward has always been about all nations being gathered. Get on board. Get on board. Not only are we called in this passage to a greater understanding of the Christian gospel, but we're called to apostolic ambition. And we've been alluding to it all this time. But if you, if you keep reading in Romans chapter 15, you'll see Paul actually mention it. After understanding what the Christian gospel was all about, Paul says in verse 20, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. Now a lot of things interest me about this. Paul does not say, God made it my ambition. Although he could have said that, right? What does he say? I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Now, some of you have a new international version and it says, it has always been my ambition. That's, just trust me on this one for now. That's actually not the best rendering of the Greek that this is translated from. This is, I make it my ambition. It's a reflexive action on the part of Paul who is speaking. I make it my ambition. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm, here's what God through my voice is calling you to do today. Make it your ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not named. I don't feel called. That's not, that's, that's not the issue. You are called. Your feelings don't govern truth. The Bible does. The next thought is, well, I'm scared of what that means for my life and the plan that I've made for, for myself. I understand that. Me too. But we're here to risk it all and lose it all for the sake of Christ. For he who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. I'm trying to tell you how to find your life. By losing it. For the sake of the glory of Christ among all nations. This is the only reason I hopped on a plane to Dubai last year. With a pregnant wife who had two other children to take care of. 
My life was changed seven years ago when God taught me this from the Bible. Otherwise, the, is it, I, I forget now, I'm a scientist, but is it centripetal force that sucks us in? The centripetal force of family concerns and ministry needs all around us will, it won't let us go. You need the Bible to break you out of that. You need the Holy Spirit's power. We're too self-absorbed apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is not about all that sensationalism and all. It's, man, if you understand what life and the Bible are all about and what, you're, what you really are all about, the, the power of the Spirit is to make us faithful to Christ. It takes every ounce of spirit power to do that. So, so here it is, apostolic ambition. Paul says, it is now my ambition to preach Christ not where he has already been named so that I would be building on someone else's foundation, but rather as it is written... Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the other thing that really interests me about what Paul says. Not just that he makes it his ambition, but I would expect Paul here to point to that dramatic conversion experience that he and he alone had with Jesus Christ. The reason I make this my ambition is because I was on my way to Damascus and a great light from heaven shone all around me and I heard a voice saying to me, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And, and my heart was moved by that experience and the Holy Spirit overwhelmed me and there was nothing else I could do. I was a sobbing mess and I, my whole life changed in that moment and that's why this is my ambition. What does Paul say? As it is written. I make it my ambition... As it is written. We all have that. See? We all have the very same thing that caused Paul to make it his ambition. The written word of God. We can't say that because we don't have Paul's experience, we're not called. Because it is written. We must live with apostolic ambition. We must make it our ambition to preach Christ where he's not yet named. We must be like those workers who go out and gather fields, or fruit rather, from those fields that have never been harvested. Souls for the kingdom of God amongst people who have never even heard the name of Christ. And not only does this passage call us to a deeper understanding of the Christian gospel or to apostolic ambition, it calls us to gospel partnerships that will actually get the job done. Now, now, some of you breathe a sigh of relief. This is the part where I tell you that I do not believe the Bible teaches that all of us are called to be Paul. I don't believe that. So I've scared you for about 30 minutes and now I'm letting you off the hook. A little bit. God loves to use a partnership between goers and senders to impact the world with the gospel. God loves to use a partnership between zealous goers and zealous senders to impact the world with the gospel. And we can see that in our text in verse 24. Paul says to the Romans, I hope, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now there's an unreached people group in Spain and on the way, Paul is going to stop by Rome and see the church. And notice what he says here. Some of you, who, who, who in here raises support for ministry? Anybody? A couple of us, all right. The, the whole letter to the Romans is a support-raising letter. 
I'm, I'm about to prove it to you. Isn't that, isn't that encouraging? The whole letter to the Romans. Paul says in verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Now, what does Paul mean? The gospel is free, but getting it from place to place is not. I hope to be helped on my journey there by you. And you can read on your own 3 John verses 6 through 8 and convince yourself that God says we ought to help people like Paul. I love the people who actually just turn right there. The rest of you, I love you too. Let's, let's keep going. <laughs> gospel partnerships that take the gospel into the final frontiers where people have never heard. I hope to be helped there or helped by you on my journey to Spain once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So I'm not just going to take your check. I'll spend some time with you and then I'll take your check. Verse 25, Paul says, At present, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in service to the saints there. And if you look down just a little bit further to verse 30, Paul actually asks for their partnership in one more way. Not just in finances or other supplies, but in prayer. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will, I may come to you and and ultimately to Spain with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now that sounds like a conclusion to Paul's letter, but he's got another chapter. And you might think that I'm finished, but I've got another chapter. Won't Won't be too long. So there it is. Paul calls the church... God calls us as a church through this passage to three things. A deeper understanding of the Christian gospel as the continuation and fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago. One man used to say, God has a plan for your life, a 70-year plan for your life to fulfill a promise he made to another man 4,000 years ago. And that's why you can't live for yourself today. Without that perspective of what your life is, you're always going to be wondering what's next. I'll tell you what's next. There are still people who haven't heard. That's what's next. That's what's up. I thought that... uh, (laughs) A deeper understanding of the Christian gospel, apostolic ambition, gospel partnerships. All of us can enter into a gospel partnership with people like Paul. As a church, I'm encouraged to announce to you today that we, we are already doing that. We have members right now who are out there one of, them, one of them will be back in a couple of days, Megan Baker. She's in northwest Africa amongst unreached peoples. Lots of people from this place are going out. And we're not the only church in Richmond doing this. Be encouraged. Our brothers and sisters all over the city and all over the world are obeying Christ to the ends of the earth. And we can enter into partnerships with them. We ought to be eager to do it. Ten percent of what you give goes toward the sake of missions. We don't touch it. It goes immediately out as soon as we get it. And a good chunk of that is part of the Betty Bristol Unreached Fund. We named it after our own Betty Bristol because Matt and Betty have so faithfully served amongst the Kyrgyz people overseas. And they're representative of our heart here at this church. And we want that to be everyone's heart. So if you're here and this is your church, you are in a partnership to take the gospel into the final frontiers. You're at Redemption Hill. Deeper understanding of the Christian gospel, apostolic ambition, gospel partnerships. And even with saying all that, I'll wrap up now. Even with saying all that, 
we can't forget how pleased Jesus is with even one human soul who turns to faith in Christ. He's, he's concerned about the nations and the peoples, but he's concerned about people and individuals like you and me. So much so that in Galatians 2.20, Paul could say, I no longer live now. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel is that personal. And so right now I want to speak to every human heart in this room. Jesus died for people just like you and me. And some of us in this room, I don't believe, have given their hearts to Jesus Christ. Your lives have not been fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. Earlier in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 5, we read it earlier this morning in our time of read and response. But in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul had this to say to the Roman church. Verse 6. While we were still powerless or weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more then shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We are saved by Him and Him alone, by Christ. From the, what? Wrath of God. In His great love for us, God sent His Son Jesus to die for our sins. We're saved only by Him from the wrath of God because Jesus absorbed it for us on the cross. And now God promises that everyone who puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ will be completely forgiven for their sins and welcomed eternally into God's family and kingdom. But God also promises wrath. God also promises wrath for those who turn away from Christ. We won't be able to erase it from our Bibles or from a certain, a certain future of God's actions toward the human race. God, God will pour wrath out upon all sin. And for all who retain their sins foolishly, ignoring Christ, the wrath of God will crush them forever. This is not an empty warning. And I've mentioned this on a past Sunday, and I'll just say it in closing here one more time for those who have never heard it. Warnings have often gone out, and people have foolishly ignored them. One day in 1945, a formation of planes appeared in the skies of Hiroshima, Japan, and the U.S. Air Force planes dropped countless slips of white paper which contained the following warning. We warn the people of Hiroshima. Everyone evacuate and stay beyond the 20-kilometer radius of Hiroshima and make sure you do so before 10 a.m. on the morning of August the 6th, 1945. Well, the sky was covered with leaflets saying that the atomic bomb would be dropped on that day. However, the people of Hiroshima took the warning lightly, saying, this is just a, a threat. It's a lie. We'll see when it happens. So only a small number of people took the warning seriously. They packed what they could and hurriedly fled with their families. Finally, the day arrived. 
August 6, 1945. People were curious as to what would happen. And one plane appeared above Hiroshima at 10.15 a.m. and dropped a black object. A while later, a black cloud of death covered the entire city. More than 200,000 people died that day because they did not heed the warning to evacuate. You're taking a big risk when you say that the warnings God gives us in the Bible about his wrath against sin are empty threats. And you're not just taking a big risk. You're wrong. He's proven it because he, he poured his wrath out on his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. What makes you think he'll let you escape? God poured his wrath out on a willing substitute who had no sin. What makes you think he'll let us escape with our sin? You don't understand God. You don't know God. Listen to me. God gave these people in Hiroshima an extra 15 minutes, or I should say the U.S. Air, the US Air Force gave them an extra 15 minutes. God has given so many of us an extra 15 years. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee to the cross of Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ in faith. Trust in him and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, by your spirit, grant that we would have a deeper understanding of the Christian gospel, that we would live with apostolic ambition, that we would enter into gospel partnerships for the sake of taking the gospel into its final frontiers, for the sake of your glory among all nations, and to help those of us who need to, to flee the coming wrath today, to trust Christ, to cling to his cross. In your name, Jesus, we pray, amen.